Hi, welcome to Witch Witch is Witch, a pop culture podcast about ladies who use magic. I'm Regina. And I'm Derek. And today we've got a pair of truly kick-butt magical ladies, both of whom were advisors to their respective kings. Some people see them as villains, some people see them as the true heroes of their stories. In both instances, there's some hinky business behind the scenes in the telling of their stories. So let's jump right in. Regina, what magical lady are you talking about today? I'm going to be talking about Morgane, or Morgan Le Fay, the protagonist of the feminist fantasy classic, The Mists of Avalon. The Mists of Avalon is a feminist retelling of the King Arthur myth from the point of view of Morgane, and is kind of a love letter to an imagined pre-Christian matriarchy with magic, witches, and picks, and fairies, and smearing everyone in woad. Oh yeah! <laughs> the priestesses of the Isle of Avalon eventually fade into the mists as the cold grip of followers of the Christ push their world into legend, and it forces all of the women into what's essentially an illiterate virginity-focused stupor. So Morgane struggles with her loyalty to Avalon and what is expected of her as a high priestess and her unrequited love for Lancelot. Arthur loves Morgane deeply but is troubled by the fact that she's his half-sister and is pushed by his wife Guinevere to abandon Morgane's counsel and the ways of Avalon and embrace Christianity instead. So this novel is one of my favorites and in doing research for this episode I found out that there was a TNT miniseries that stars Angelica Houston among others and I'm really excited to see that. I also learned something that I'm going to touch on later which is why this book is a problematic fave for me so trigger warning ahead for child abuse and rape oh that's such a fun trigger warning <laughs> I, don't, I think by their nature trigger warnings are not great right kyla and i recently binged all of that 13 reasons why series on netflix oh yeah how'd you like it i mean it's good you've read the book right mm -hmm. it's a very popular ya book from like 10 years ago mm -hmm. i did appreciate that at the start of specific episodes they had trigger warnings they were like warning this episode features graphic scenes of suicide mm -hmm. this episode features graphic scenes of rape and it was like okay cool I thought the show was dark before now, but now we get to the heavy stuff. Right. Thanks for the heads up, Netflix. Anyway, mm -hmm. let's lighten the mood ever so slightly. Let's do it. And get right into the five laws of witchiness. So can you tell me, according to the first law, whether Morgane or Morgan Le Fay or however we want to do this, uh, identifies as female? So Morgane definitely identifies as female. And the book spends a lot of time exploring femininity and women-centric religion in this complete reimagining of history. It's coupled with an overlay of 80s Wiccan ritual and feminism. Morgane is a priestess of Avalon, and the entire structure of the society in the story is predicated on a matriarchal magical governance, right? So Morgane lives on the island of Avalon with many other priestesses, and female identity is explored at great length in this book, and Morgane's counterpart in the story, Guinevere, is kind of her exact opposite, right? She's fair and Morgane is dark and Guinevere is really simple and God-fearing and Morgane is very clever and witchy. Guinevere is completely loved by Lancelot and Morgane wishes to gain Lancelot's love. So the interplay between the two of these women is really interesting, and then their eventual friendship makes for a really fascinating read. But all that's to say, Morgane definitely identifies as female, and it's their very femaleness of the characters in this book that 
make it such an interesting story. Yeah, I like that it's central to her character. Like, mm -hmm. her personality and her relationship to the rest of the world would be very different if it weren't for her femininity. Mm -hmm. And part of what is interesting about this story is that, you know, you have this classic legend, this Arthur myth, and Morgan Le Fay is kind of a side character, and this story puts the focus front and center on the women in this classic myth, which is kind of interesting and pretty cool. Yeah, it's great. All right, so the second law of witchiness is that the witch in question practice magic. Can you tell me if and how Morgane practices magic? There is so much magic, and it's awesome. So the, the rituals on the aisle are really cool. There's an incestuous magical initiation of Arthur into kinghood. All of the magic in this book is really robust and interesting, and I mentioned earlier, is largely based on the Wiccan practices of the 1980s when it was published. Spoilers, Morgane is Arthur's half-sister, and she ends up having sex with him in a cave, where they do this ritual where Arthur is crowned god of the hunt with some antlers and stuff like that and Morgane does this magical embroidery on the scabbard for the famous sword from the lady of the lake right so the clear sheath symbolism plays out into the eventual incest of arthur and Morgane and sets the stage for what i like to think of as the love polygon that the rest of the book explores arthur loves Morgane. Morgane loves lancelot lancelot loves both guinevere and arthur that gets really interesting and gwen loves arthur and also Lancelot and God. Morgane also possesses some transfiguration magic, healing magic, and what is referred to as the sight, which allows her to see into the future as well into the current space around people that she's looking for. So Morgane loses her powers at one point when she refuses to accept her fate as High Priestess of Avalon and leaves the island. But for the most part, she has some pretty intense magic. Third rule of witchiness is that the witch in question practice feminism. So uh, how does Morgane practice feminism? So I mentioned in the intro that this is a feminist classic and totally is. Mm -hmm. So if you want a really lush read with magic and swords and sorcery and feminism and alternate history, yeah read this book. Morgane practices feminism and frames the narrative coming from her matriarchal society standpoint. And it's a really unique point of view. She is a powerful woman. She's the king's advisor. She basically is running not only Britain to a certain degree, but also the society of the women who live in Avalon as well. So the feminism in this book stands out a lot because there's the backdrop of the changing landscape of Britain from this goddess-centric religion based out of Avalon to Christianity. And a lot of what the book deals with and a lot of what Morgane deals with is a really progressive and compelling perspective on female sexuality and like burgeoning female sexuality so there's a lot about how when she comes of age like what that what that looks like and when she is going to do the ritual for the king making what that means in terms of her physical and spiritual development and there's always the counterpoint with the way she views sexuality and her body and the way Guinevere who's portrayed as like super uptight the way she does and so there's a lot of really progressive stuff that's happening. But I need to take the moment now to talk about the, the not-so-nice things in regards to this book, in particular, 
the author. So for quite some time, this book and the author were lauded for feminism. And then in 2014, the author's daughter came forward with testimony about her mother raping and abusing her, her sibling, and other young people. The author's husband was also a convicted child rapist and sex offender, and the author was criticized for protecting and defending his actions. All of this puts the story of the Mists of Avalon in a very different light. Can we look at an author's works and have it stand apart from their actions? When we read critically for something like feminism in this work, can we separate what the characters are doing within their fictional contexts from the real-world crimes the author committed. When you read scenes in this book that explicitly deal with sexual acts, in particular Beltane rights, where it's clear some people are forced into sex, can you reconcile that with the author's own acts of rape and abuse and still find feminism in this work? I can't really answer that question very easily. I talk about problematic favorites a lot, and this is a problematic fave for me that gives me the most pause. I hope that anyone who's looking to read this book for the first time will be able to look at the book both in isolation and in the context of the author's crimes and try to determine for his or herself how to appreciate or not appreciate this work. When you first brought this up to me before we recorded, I said, I ask myself the same question sometimes when I read works by like Orson Scott Card or Frank Miller, people who, when I first read their works, was not familiar with their own personal worldviews. And then later on, I was like, oh, well, that informs a lot of what I enjoyed about their work, but also didn't realize was kind of gross. But, uh, but thankfully, neither of them are convicted criminals. So it's different. They're just, mm -hmm. you know, not politically aligned or socially aligned with issues that I favor. <laughs> right. But anyway, these are issues that will definitely color your read if you keep them in mind. I hope that people can still enjoy the art right. without being tainted by the artist. There definitely is a disconnect once the art is out in the public where the audience can read what they mm -hmm. read from a piece without the author explicitly saying, oh, no, 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 it's this. Mm -hmm. Hopefully people can still enjoy these books separate from that history. But in I also the context of the author, yeah. Yeah, but I also hope that people are able to take that context and sort of learn more about people and themselves and the writing of fiction at large. Absolutely. This is not an issue that we should ignore. Mm -hmm. I hope it's not an issue that prevents us from enjoying fiction. Yeah. And I should also mention that after all of this came out, the publisher of the books made it so that some of the proceeds of the sale of the paperback of The Mists of Avalon does go to various charities. And I know that um, one of the writers who was working within another um, series that this author had started donated two book advances as well as future proceeds that she was going to get in that series to Rain, which is the Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network. So I think one of the reasons why a lot of people choose to avoid purchasing works from creators with whom they have ideological differences is because they don't want the money that they're spending to go towards someone who ideologically they don't align with. But in this case, because a lot of this came out posthumously, and because all of the, the people involved, they all have kind of made this shift so that money that you're spending for this book is actually going towards a good cause because of just how heinous the crimes are that this author committed. So so don't let those politics stop you from yeah, so, buying so, this book. Yeah, exactly. So if you do want to seek it out, don't feel like you can't because your money is going towards someone who's 
terrible. Okay. On a lighter note, I hope, fourth rule of witchiness is that the subject come from a place of misunderstanding or persecution. Can you tell me how Morgaine is misunderstood or persecuted? She totally is. And I touched briefly on the counterpoint of Guinevere versus Morgaine. So Gwen is portrayed as pretty ignorant and innocent and God-fearing and completely misunderstands Morgaine and is constantly associating all of the priestesses of Avalon with evil and Gwen's deep belief in Christianity and anti-women's sentiments includes making her relationship with Morgaine super complex as the king's sister and advisor, owing to her experience as priestess in Avalon, Morgaine plays a really vital role in Arthur's day-to-day. Coupled with this love polygon that I mentioned earlier, there's just misunderstanding all over the place for poor Morgaine. And lest it seem like Morgaine hates the Christians as much as Gwen and the rest of the Christians in the book hate Morgaine, Morgaine does admit to never hating Christianity, just the extreme followers. And she also says that the goddess appears in the guise of the Virgin Mary, evolving to be present for the people of Britain who need to convert to their new Christian rule. So even though Morgaine is misunderstood by a lot of the key folks in this story, she seems to have a pretty calm and down-to-earth perspective when it comes to why she's being misunderstood, namely because of this new religious regime that's rising up. And I know this is not the point of the segment you were just doing, but I love the phrase love polygon. <laughs> you are well. I love it. It makes me think about all sorts of other shapes that love relationships could be. I want to see a love trapezoid. I was going to say a love trapezoid. I would imagine it's a lot like a love square, except two of the people are further apart. Mm-hmm. Like a love square is like everybody, everybody's all lined up right? So maybe they're all in like the same place emotionally, but like a love trapezoid is like everybody is not really in the same place emotionally. Like nobody's quite ready for the kind of the same kind of love. You know what I mean? Yeah. A a love rhombus would be you take that love square and then you just slant it a little bit. Right. The love trapezoid is you take that square and then just two of the people just sort of stretch away. Mm -hmm. They're just like, I'm not not, really, I'm not ready. As involved in this, I'm aware of it. I have the feeling. I have an interest level, but I got my personal window over here. Yes, exactly. And now the uh, the (laughs) final rule of witchiness, is Morgaine bonded to a sentience larger than herself? Absolutely, Morgaine, as well as the other witches in Avalon, are bonded to the goddess, who is kind of a catch-all female creation deity, again, following the tradition of many Dianic Wiccan practices common at the time of publication. Perfect. Love it. That was an easy answer. Easy. So, Derek, now I've told you all about Morgaine and the priestesses of Avalon, as well as the sordid history regarding the author of this book. What about you? Tell me about your king's advisor. Who are you going to tell me about today? Yeah, my magical badass king's advisor is Yzma from The Emperor's New Groove. Okay, I admit it. Maybe I wasn't as nice as I should have been. But Yzma, do you really want to kill me? Just think of it as you're being let go. That your life's going in a different direction. That your body's part of a permanent outplacement. Hey, that's kind of like what he said to you when you got fired. I know. It's called a cruel irony, like my dependence on you. I love her. 
<laughs> Such a good Disney villainess. Such a really good one. So Yzma, for those who have not seen the film, is an advisor to the titular emperor in Disney's 2000 animated film, The Emperor's New Groove. When the 18-year-old emperor, Kuzco, catches Yzma ruling on citizens' pleas without his consent, he promptly fires her, and rather than listening to her explanation, Kuzco instead focuses on the deep wrinkles in Yzma's face and an errant leafy green vegetable stuck in her teeth, because he's shallow and self-involved like that. Mm -hmm. Furious at being so callously cast aside, Yzma swears revenge on Cusco, believing that if he were to die without an heir, she would easily take the throne and rule the kingdom. So she plots to poison Cusco over a farewell dinner, but her assistant grabs the wrong vial of potion and accidentally turns the emperor into a llama. Naturally, Yzma now needs to capture and kill the llama, and hilarity ensues, as so often happens when using the word llama. Llama. When's the last time you heard the word llama in a non-humorous context? Actually, pretty frequently, because as we mentioned in another episode, I am a spinner, and llamas and alpacas have really great spinning fiber content. I just don't, and I'm sure as soon as I say this, one of our listeners will like send an article to us saying otherwise, but I've never seen a headline on the news, like, 17 dead in freak llama accidents. <laughs> Not really. I mean, the best I've got was... Llamas are pretty chill. Syphil and Ollie had a very catchy song about getting to llama school. Go to Pico. You take Pico to Colorado. Take Colorado to Las Palmas. And that's how you get to llama school. Llamas. Sock puppet talk shows from the 90s. That's how oh we God. do. Yes, that's how we roll. The first rule of witchiness is that the witch in question identify as female. Does Yzma identify as female? Yes, Yzma is a lady, and this is one of those beautiful instances of a Disney character being heavily influenced in design on the voice actor. So just like how Aladdin's genie was an off-the-wall improv machine, just like voice actor Robin Williams, Yzma is an aging diva, an unquestionable force of feminine power that is no less threatening in her advanced age, just like her voice actress, Eartha Kitt. Fun fact... Orson Welles once called Eartha Kitt the most exciting woman in the world. <laughs> so for those unaware, Eartha was a ferocious and sexually provocative singer and actress from the 1940s right on through to her passing in 2008. She had a storied career that everyone in the world should be jealous of. Most people nowadays know her from her holiday classic ballad, Santa Baby. Santa Baby, so hurry down the chimney tonight. All of those well-known personality traits inform Yzma to make her a woman who is extremely confident and comfortable in her skin and refuses to take crap from anyone. And she is still just as spry and devious in her twilight years as she was in her youth. I love Yzma for the fact that she's an older lady. But she doesn't act old. She's very spry. Despite the fact that there's the way that Kuzco he kind of focuses on her looks... Her age doesn't impede her from doing any of the awesome things that she does. That's sort of exactly the point of the movie, because the whole moral is Cusco has to get over himself and stop being so shallow and stop being so self-involved and sort of look to the people around him and realize they have lives, they have value, all that stuff. And for the entirety of the movie, the only thing he knows about Yzma is she's creepy and old. Yes. And she was like a mother to him. She practically raised yeah, him. Yeah, she raised him because he yeah. was like orphaned and stuff. Mm -hmm. and, and that's 
the thing is that witches often, if they're not portrayed as exceptionally beautiful, they're often portrayed as kind of old and scary and haggard. And there is just as much fear in society about beautiful, young, sexually active women, such as the priestesses of Avalon, just as much fear for that as there is for older, darker, creepier women. I would love to grow up to be like Yzma, to be honest. Probably with smarter plans, though. I hope so. Hopefully smarter plans. I mean, her plans were good. She just had some bad luck and a flunky assistant who didn't really carry through on those plans. But I think we talked about this in the Sanderson's and Spellman's episode, how the hag type of witch in particular Mm -hmm. tends to rely on sort of potions and transformation magic in order to change themselves and change others around them. Mm -hmm. It's a a hag-like witch in Beauty and the Beast that transforms the prince because because he judges her for being old and ugly. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a common trope amongst that particular type of witch is like, oh, if you are perceived as being old and ugly, then you have the power to transform things physically. Exactly. It's pretty interesting. Mm-hmm. So the second law of witchiness is that the witch in question practice magic. Does Yzma practice magic? So this is something that we have discussed on the show before. This goes back to Arthur C. Clarke's law that any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. So Yzma leans more into the mad scientist trope than that of a witch, but the feats she accomplishes seem far more like what we consider to be magic than science. She has a wide variety of potions in her lab, and the whole conceit of the film circles around her death potion being confused with a llama potion. She later also uses a cat potion to transform herself into Kitty Yzma, which is a fun little nod for the grown-ups in the audience who recognize Eartha Kitt, as she was sometimes called Kitty, and also she played Catwoman on the 1960s Batman TV series. In the later spin-off film and TV series that came out of Emperor's New Groove, Yzma frequently uses a variety of plot-relevant potions, which generally will also transform people into animals. I love this. Also, she was the most adorable kitty. Oh, she was such so a cute little ferocious. kitty cat. So ferocious. And so small. And I love when she first turns into the cat because she immediately threatens Cusco by saying like, Looking for this. Is that my voice? Is that my voice? Oh well. No, no, don't drop it. I'm not going to drop it, you fool. I'm going to drink it. And once I turn back into my beautiful self, I'm going to kill you. (laughs) (laughs) It's so good. Yeah, I like all of her potions. I think they're pretty great. I think that it's like really impressive that she amassed such a store of potions that can transfigure people into all different kinds of animals. Yeah, how much time must she have been brewing all of these potions? That's what I'm saying. Like, what was... Anyway, I don't know. So the third law of witchiness is that the witch in question practiced feminism. Does Yzma practice feminism? Hear me out on this one. On a shallow level in the movie, Yzma's mission is primarily to gain power. She wants to be empress over the kingdom just because then she'll be the boss and no one can tell her no. Just slightly under the surface, though, Yzma is basically just trying to overthrow a rude and self-entitled buffoon of a monarch who values none of his advisors or citizens. He considers them all to be beneath him and summarily ignores them when he gets bored, which happens pretty much anytime people aren't complimenting him. Yzma's 
evil scheme doesn't really kick in until Kuzco's selfish and childish temperament threatens her livelihood, and while she does seek limitless power, she genuinely believes that the citizens of the kingdom would be safer and happier under her rule. That seems fairly benevolent to me. She wants to be a better leader to the people because she sees a problem and she's like, I'm the one who can fix it. Yeah, I would def I would say that Isma is feminist. She also, despite her assistant's ineptitude from time to time, she still values him and, like, is really supportive of mm -hmm. him when, <laughs> when they have their various exploits along the way to try to find Cusco. Yeah, they have a very, like, playful relationship as sidekick and leader. Absolutely. And, yeah, she is just trying to get this monarch who's terrible out of the picture so that she can more easily rule the kingdom and i think definitely in her mind make it a better place so i don't know i'm gonna say that she's feminist i'm gonna agree with you the fourth law of witchiness is that the witch in question be persecuted or misunderstood. How is Yzma persecuted or misunderstood? Cusco uses Yzma's grab for power as an excuse to fire her, but it's clear from the way he interacts with her that he just doesn't like her because she's old. Cusco even introduces Yzma in the movie by saying that she is living proof that dinosaurs once roamed the earth. Which is really rude, dude. That's so not rude. cool. Ageism. Mm -hmm. He finds her wrinkled and graying skin offensive and irrelevant in his kingdom, and so she's driven out. He's vain and so focused on his own beauty and how it will be reflected in the beauty of his kingdom. There was a really great listicle on BuzzFeed a couple of years ago called 17 Reasons Yzma is the Actual Hero of the Emperor's New Groove. People should really check it out. It's awesome. It completely shows the correct read of the film that Yzma is not the bad guy. Definitely it's just Kuzco's being a total dick to her. Mm -hmm. And I think I think this is so cool and smart. And it also reminds me of another film that includes magic users that has a similar conceit. Although no witches, because it's mostly dudes, called Big Trouble in Little China. Oh, hell yeah. And what I love about that film is that the loudmouthed uh, white savior guy thinks he's the hero of the film but actually it's his asian sidekick who's the hero of the film yep. he's, he's, he's the, actually the sidekick he's not the hero but he doesn't know it so he spends the whole movie being loud and obnoxious and ridiculous mm -hmm. when it's actually the other guy who's the hero of the film and it's great and there's there's magic and explosions and it's pretty great cool guys don't look at explosions they blow things up and then walk away but this is something I've been thinking about a lot. So we, we mentioned earlier that these are both stories that had very troubling behind-the-scenes content. Mm -hmm. The Emperor's New Groove had a prolonged and troubled development at Disney throughout the back half of the 1990s. It was a, They started on it in 94, and over the course of a few years, basically ripped up everything they had done, started from scratch, had a new director, new writers, new animation team, everything just changed the entire story. And the only things they kept were the two lead actors, David Spade as Cusco and Eartha Kitt as Yzma. And in the original version of it, Yzma was supposed to be much more dark and serious. And it was going to be a sort of traditional Disney musical where Cusco 
still transforms into a llama, but he has a friend his own age instead of a mature, middle-aged man helping him out. The friend his age would have been voiced by Owen Wilson instead of having the middle-aged John Goodman character. Uh, the sidekick to Yzma would have been Harvey Firestein instead of Patrick Warburton. And if you're familiar with those two actors at all, you can tell still would have been comic relief, would have been a much less buoyant and jovial comic relief. So... Those casting changes obviously change the direction of the film a huge deal. And it's hard to imagine how this story would have played out had Yzma not been such a, a bright and jubilant and flexible character. If they had stuck with that original storyline, I don't think Yzma would have been memorable at all. Right. It sounds like despite all of the drama that went on behind the scenes, they ended up with a much better end product because of that. Yeah, if you think about the other Disney animated features that were coming out around that time. So this was after Pocahontas and Hunchback of Notre Dame, but before Brother Bear and Home on the Range. Like this was a very troubling time for Disney animation. And they were just starting working on, on Lilo and Stitch at the time. And so there was very much that vibe of this isn't working. We need to try something else. So yeah, Emperor's New Groove was one of the last sort of like desperate grabs at relevancy Disney had before Pixar became a fully Disney-owned studio. So let's move on to the fifth law of witchiness, that the witch in question is bonded to a sentience larger than herself. Is Yzma bonded to a sentience? Mm, no, not so much. Uh, Yzma sees herself as a scientist, and most accounts of her as a Disney villainess treat her as a mad scientist rather than witch, like we mentioned. It's a type of fantastical alchemy-based science, so it's pretty much the same as brewing potions in a cauldron. Much like all of the left-hand path Satanists that you love so dearly, Regina, Yzma is in it for herself. Yes. So, no, there's no greater sentience involved. No greater sentience, but yeah, Yzma, almost certainly a Satanist. It would be nice if there were some sort of llama god in the film, but there isn't. <laughs> Just regular old llamas. Okay, so now that we've introduced both of our magical ladies, let's talk about our covens. If you could only have Morgane or Yzma in your coven, Regina, which one would you pick and why? While I really love Yzma, I really, really do, I feel like I would have to pick Morgane because mm -hmm. Morgane is really powerful. She's really smart. She's really resourceful. She also isn't the type of person to rush headlong into a situation. Like she takes a, a really good, hard, pragmatic look at a situation before she decides to do anything. And I think that that's really valuable to have in a coven. Mm -hmm. I feel like, you know, I really like Yzma for her personality and her cabinet of animal potions is pretty great, <laughs> but I think Morgane just has so much to offer. And also, like, having the Lady of the Lake as one of your coven members. Pretty great. Kind of awesome. So, yeah, I think I would, I think I would stick with Morgane. That makes perfect sense. I'm, I'm with you. Like, I love Yzma. She's delightful. She's wonderful. I want to hang out with her. She does not play well with others. Except for Kronk. She, I mean, she bosses him around, but she's also... She like, bosses him around. She's also pretty nice to him in, in some ways. Sometimes. Sometimes she is nice to Kronk. More often than not, she's the boss. But yeah, she probably doesn't play very well with others. For that reason and others, like, yeah, I, w I would go with Morgane because Morgane is pretty great 
all around. She's fantastic. She's wonderful. Just don't cross her. Just don't cross her and you're fine. So we know that Morgane is joining both of our covens, apparently. But everyone is welcome at the Cauldron Cabaret. Yes, this is where I think Yzma shines. And you know why Yzma shines in the Cauldron Cabaret? Tell me why. Eartha Kitt. Eartha Kitt. It's Eartha Kitt. Just get her up on stage. She will crush it. Nobody wants to follow that act. Nobody. She is an absolute powerhouse on the stage. Whether she's acting or singing, dancing, Eartha Kitt will kill it every time. And since Yzma is blatantly just Eartha Kitt with magic, basically, do it, Yzma, get up there. I can't see I can't see Morgane being too into the cabaret. Mm-hmm. She's no stranger to a Beltane right? But I think that the atmosphere is going to be a little too much for her personality. I feel like she would be She like, wouldn't even want to like sit quietly at a table with Leia or like just sit and drink at the bar with magic. Oh, you know what? I think that she probably would gravitate towards Leia. Mm-hmm. I think that they would have a very like chill corner with like cushions and yeah. drinks and then being like, don't really talk. Yeah, because now that we've populated this bar a bit, I feel like we have not necessarily sectioned off areas of the bar, but we definitely have scenes mm-hmm. happening in the bar. For so, sure. like, there's definitely the sort of jovial, fun part where the Sandersons and the Spellmans and the, the Kid Witches are, the, are popping the off. The Lord Fanny Yzma variety show. Oh my god, Lord Fanny and Yzma need to hang out together. It would be. Unreal. I love this pairing. It would be so good. There would be so many costume changes between the two of them. So many costumes. They would be competing to see how many dresses each one of them can wear in a night. So much mascara. That's the thing. Isma has those like incredibly long, like spider leg lashes. It'd be a lot of yes. And then there would be a a quiet corner with Mm -hmm. Morgane, Leia. Every now and then Ilyana comes uh, by. Sally Owens. Sally Owens, yeah. Yeah, This is a good spot. Yeah, our our Sarah Michelle Geller from Simply Irresistible would be hanging out probably behind the bar with Ilyana. Yeah. So the two of them are are tending bar. Tending bar. That makes perfect Mm -hmm. sense. That hadn't Mm -hmm. occurred to me when we were recording last time. She's totally, she's tending bar. She's bringing out some, some snacks, some bar snacks for people. You gotta eat sometimes, you know? One of these days, we're gonna paint a mural of this cabaret because... We've, we've very <laughs> well populated this whole scene. Well, that about wraps things up for this episode of Which Witch is Which. Now that you've heard what we have to say, what do you think? Who would you invite into your coven? Let us know at witchwitchcast at gmail.com or on Twitter at witchwitchcast. That's W-H-I-C-H-W-I-T-C-H-C-A-S-T. Don't upset the elder gods. Subscribe to Which Witch is Which on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play, wherever your pods may be cast. Until then... Remember, the witchiest love polygon is a hexagon.